Father in heaven, we sang the song and we want that to happen this week at Army in our own lives. I desire that in my life, and uh, I know you desire that in my life and in the lives here. So we ask that uh, to that end we could study together today. In Christ's name, amen. Be seated. Several weeks ago, I was attending uh, the World Congress in... uh, where was that? Atlanta. Yeah, I've been a lot of different places recently. And, um, you know, I, uh, I had already arranged to speak on the second weekend of the General Conference, not knowing who the General Conference president would be or not knowing anything. And so I was speaking in a small church. Have you ever been speaking and just wished that you were not speaking? And that you were listening to someone else. I mean, I don't, I don't often have that situation, you know. But I really just wished I was listening to, uh, to Elder Wilson. Well, right when I got done, we went to this house. Um, and there were about 30 or 40 of, us, 40 of us there. And we listened to the sermon right after the fact. And it was such a powerful sermon. How many of you heard that sermon the second weekend? Such a powerful sermon that uh, we all just knelt down. And we asked the Lord to bring revival in our hearts. And uh, like I said the other night, though, as I listened to it, I also was kind of like saying, yeah, I'm so, this is such a blessing, this sermon is so great that, uh, you know, I can see exactly how this person needs that message or the other person needs the message. And I was like applying the message to other people. How many of you have ever done that? You're just like applying, you go, man, I, I know that my wife needs to hear that, Amen. Oh, brother, I know that my husband needs that. You know, and they're like, "Mm," you know. (laughs) Right? And and then I realized the message was was really for no one else. It was for me. And there was a quote that he uh, started with there. And by the way, they told me here at Army, if I don't, like, do this in a way where you're learning how to study the Bible, they'll never invite me back. And I'm so terrified about that that I just want to try and... Do my best here. Um, But this statement really got my attention. A revival of true godliness, from a book called Selected Messages, page 121. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. And to seek this should be our first work. The Lord does not now work to bring many souls into the truth because the church members, because of church members who have never been converted and those who have backslidden. Now, how many think that's kind of a sobering statement? So we have Selected Messages and Testimonies, Volume 6, that I just quoted. So when I thought about that, um, you know, I, I began to search my heart, and I said, you know, it's me standing in the need of prayer. Begin, begin to then, then study. And many times our study... Our Bible study will come out of a personal sense of need, yes or no? How many of you have noticed that? And then I went back, and this is always a good thing to do. I began to look up, and I began to uh, ask the Lord what I should study. And I, I, I said, well, it's revival I need to study, so what did I do? I looked up the word revival in, well, on my computer. You can do that in your concordance. And do you know how many times the word revival occurs in the Bible in terms of translated in the English word, 
That's only 16 times. Aren't you just delighted when that happens? There's only like 16 words. I just finished a study on the heart, which uh, I'll do some of that in the next hour here, but that was 800 and some words. And man, that was a lot of words, right, to go through. But this one was like 16. And I was like, man, yes. And some of those were just wonderful, powerful little Bible studies, like, uh, you know, that dead child was revived by the prayer of Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 22. And then that dead man who they buried, remember that? And they put him in the tomb, and he touched Elisha, Elisha's bones, and he revived and got out of the tomb. How many would like to be at that funeral? You're just like, whoa, oh, man, you know? That would have been something else, a revival of a dead man. And then, um, you know, the revival that led to the reestablishment of the temple and the wall in Ezra, chapter 9 and verse 9. So I looked at all these texts, but one text especially gripped me, and it is found in, in the middle of the Bible there in the songbook section, and I want to show it to you. It's Psalm 85. Now, the Psalms, Psalm 85, so you might want to turn there, the Psalms, of course, are divided into how many sections? Does anyone know that? How many sections are the Psalms divided into? And did you know that the Psalms were actually divided into sections? Uh, they're actually divided into sections. And they have five sections. And those five sections are actually divided in such a way that those songs were supposed to go along with the first five books of the Bible. So when you read Genesis, you had songs to go with it. Exodus, you had songs to go with it. I mean, our pianist here, Jackie, would have loved it. She's going, all right, let's do a little Exodus. But she was actually mixing Exodus and, and several books together here this last time. Did you notice that? But anyway, so these, these were all mixed together. Oh, no, they weren't mixed together. So the Psalms would go with the different books of the Bible. And, uh, of course, the Pentateuch itself Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch itself is divided some, in somewhat of a, uh, of a pyramid-type scheme. There's some type of a, uh, of a like a mountain uh, development, if you will, where you can look at this point, this point, this point, and it goes right to the center. And do you know what the center of the Pentateuch is? It's the book of Leviticus. And you know what chapter in the book of Leviticus is the center of the center of the center? It is... Leviticus chapter 16. Did you know that? And Leviticus chapter 16, do you know what that chapter is about? What's it about? It's about the Day of Atonement. How many of you have heard of this before, the Day of Atonement? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. And guess what psalm? You probably figured it out now. Guess what psalm was to be sung on that day? What song are we studying? Okay, uh, maybe we need to sing that again. Revive us again. Amen? Do we need to stand up again? Are you with me? So this psalm that we're studying today is actually the middle of the middle of the middle. And it, 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 it was the psalm that was sung on the Day of Atonement. And by the way, on the Day of Atonement, there were different so-called Halil Psalms, that as you sang those psalms, you would go up one step, and the next step, and the next step, and the, te and, and the priest would just move up higher and higher and higher. And you know that little thing where it says Selah? You know, that means, of course, think about it, but it also means kick it up a notch. And they would sing, and then they would go up a half step, mm, 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 and they would be kicking it up a notch. 
And when they got to the Day of Atonement, this was like the high point of the high point. Right? Now, we're looking at Psalm 85. Did you notice anything about it? Did you notice anything about it? Well, let me tell you something about it. There are different literary structures in the Bible. When you're studying the Bible, you need to figure out what genre you're studying, you know. You've got to figure out how it was built, whether the, what the author was trying to do. And did you know that this particular author, uh, David, and the, you know, he, would, he would build some sometimes as, uh, as acrostics, you know, based on words or letters of the alphabet. Like, for instance, Psalm 119, Aleph, Beth, Gemel, Dalah, Heh, Wah, Zayin, you know, all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. He would go through those, and that was in the, the entire alphabet. And when you learned the alphabet as a little boy or as a little girl, you would say Aleph, and then you would say eight verses, Beth, where we get the word alphabet, and then Gemel, and then Daleth, and then Het, and all the way through. And so when you got through learning the alphabet, you knew all about the law of God, and it was put in your heart because you had to memorize the whole thing. Can you say amen to that? So I think it's important to kind of understand this. Now, having said that, we look at Psalm 85, and guess what it is? I just discovered this, didn't read in a book. <laughs> By the way, it is better to study the Bible without reading any other books. And just really do your best. Try and figure everything out that you can without reading anything else. Because guess what? It's exciting. And you'll learn more that way. And you, uh, you will not succumb to thinking someone else's thoughts. You know, I used to work as a nurse. And, uh, you know, we'd go into the patient's room. And I always wanted to take a new look at the patient. Right? I didn't want to just read everything that had been there before. I might find something else out if I didn't just get prejudiced by everything that I read, right? So as I looked at the psalm, I saw that it too had a chiastic structure. Would you like to see that structure? Look at it with me, Psalm chapter 85, and let me just show you briefly. It kind of builds toward a center, and that center text is what I want to talk about today, but look at verse 1. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. Look at verse 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Can you see how verse 1 goes with verse 12? Land, land. Now look at verse 2. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. Now look at verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. You see how those are related. His mercy is what gives us forgiveness. Can you say amen to that? So verse 2 goes with verse 10. Then look at verse 4. Restore us, O God of our salvation. Then look at verse 9. Surely his salvation is to near those who fear him, and that glory may dwell in their land. Can you see how those go together? Can you see that? Boom, 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 boom. It's building. Then look at verse 5. Will you be with, angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? And then look at verse 8 in the middle. He will speak peace to his people. So he was angry, now he speaks peace. And then we come to the chiastic center, the very middle of the psalm. You want to see the middle of the psalm? The very core. Look at it. I was studying revival, and this was one of my favorite texts that I found. Will, verse 6, middle of that psalm, middle of the psalm. Will you not, what does it say next? Revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. Can you say that from memory now? Will you not revive us again 
that your people may rejoice in you. Can you say it now to the person next to you? You guys, you guys, you're looking down at each other. Will you not, what? Revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. How many think that's a wonderful text? Now, we just heard from Pastor Myers that one of the best things to do many times is, is kind of a word study and then ask questions of the text. Isn't that right? As we're studying the Bible. Have we learned anything so far? We have learned already in Bible study that we, we try and find the setting of the chapter we're, we're, we're looking at. What, what did we discover? That it was a psalm that was sung on what day? Day of Atonement. And it was the psalm that was the counterpoint of, of, of that Day of Atonement, which was, where was the Day of Atonement in terms of the structure of the Pentateuch? The very center. And this psalm then, it had a chiastic structure too. And the very center of the psalm was Will you not revive us again, O Lord, that your people may rejoice in you? How many can say hallelujah to that? This is the center picture of the Day of Atonement. And how many of you think there's a church that, that actually has been uh, birthed to bring attention to the Day of Atonement? How many of you knew, knew this? And isn't that church saying, will you not revive Will you not, O Lord, revive your people again that we may rejoice in you? Isn't that the whole idea? Right? We want to be a part of the jury that's selected. Right? And we want to rejoice. That's the point. Now, word study. What does that word revive mean? Next thing you do, once you find the mint, middle of everything, you might want to look up the, uh, the word. The word revive Chaya in Hebrew means to live, to revive, to keep alive, to quicken, to recover, to repair, to restore, to be whole. Those are the nuances of the word as you look at them through the, through the Old Testament. How many think that sounds good to you? Sounds good to me. So let's ask a couple questions of the text. Many times when you're studying it, if you can just look at the text and then force yourself to ask questions that the text answers. And let me ask you those questions. What is the text saying is needed? And you guys, some of you are awake. Some of you are just not quite awake. What is the text saying is needed? Man, it is so sad. But anyway, (laughs) that's right. It's, It's revival. And what is revival? It signifies a renewed spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of the mind and heart. So it's basically we need our our heart to be revived. Second question, who needs revival according to the text? Look at it. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Who is it in that text that needs revival? What are the words? Us and what else? Your people, right? So the people, it's us and your people. In other words, who is it that needs revival? The church. What church needs it? The Laodicean church, isn't that right? So, what is needed? Revival. Who needs it? Us, your people, the church. And who brings it according to the text? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Who brings that? God brings it. It says you, 
You, twice. In other words, the Lord brings revival. Can you bring revival? Can someone else manufacture revival? Who can bring revival alone? God. Now let me see. Let's read it again. You, you see, you mine the text to see if there's something more in it. Let's ma- let me ask you another question. It, has there ever been any history of revival as you read the text? Will you not revive us? What's the next word? Again, that your people may, be rejoice, may rejoice in you. Is, has there been a history of a need for revival? Yes, the word again, again. And then what, according to the text, is to be the result of revival? Will you not revive us again that your people may what? Rejoice in who? In you. So what's the focus of the revival? Rejoicing not in yourself, but in who? Now how many think that's a rich Bible study right there? Will you not revive us again, that we may rejoice in you? Oh Lord, is that your heart prayer? Will you not revive me again, amen, that I might rejoice in you? I don't know about you, but if that happened to just one person this week, the whole week would be worth it. Personal review. And the only person that you can really do much about terms of openness to that is not your husband and it's not your wife it's not your kids it's not your parents it's you saying oh lord will you not revive me again that i might rejoice in you right Uh i don't know about you but that's that's what i want to see happen i came to i came to army to ask the lord for a revival and i'd love to see a revival in my life. I'm sure my wife would love to see a revival in my life too. And I'm sure my AFCO students would love to see a revival. It's nice to watch someone being revived. Amen? Amen. So, what do I do? Do I passively wait? This is where we have to look at the context. Remember, this was the chiastic center of not only the Pentateuch, but also of this psalm, right? And, 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 and that's the kerygma, that's the core, that's the, the central seed. Oh Lord, will you not revive us again that we might rejoice in you? But how? How? doesn't tell us how unless we, we look back and we look at the whole psalm. And then it answers the question of what do I do? Do I passively wait? Is that what it seems to indicate? Is revival some capricious act of God that falls only when he sees fit? Yes, he only brings it, but uh, does the text seem to indicate how revival can come? Well, let's look. Look at verse 1. Lord, Lord, you have have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. What's this seem to indicate? What's it telling us? Has God done anything? Has he ever acted? What's the text seem to indicate? You have been favorable. You have brought the captivity of Jacob. In other words, if we desire revival, we need to look back and see see what God has done. That he has acted in the past. Has he ever brought revival in your, your life before? Has there ever been a time when he has moved in your life? Revive us again, we sang. Revive us what? 
again. In other words, you've acted before. You have been favorable. You have brought us back. And by the word, that word favorable and brought us back. If you looked up another word study, by the way, when you're studying the Bible, look at broadly, but then look at every single word. You can, you know, some, sometimes my students, they'll tell me, well, you know, we've, just, we've, we've looked at that text so long, we can't find anything else. And I look at their papers and I'm going, what are you talking about? There are thousands of more things to find about that text. You just keep looking, looking, looking. You know, whenever I get up to make a presentation, it's not like I'm prepared. There are so many things I don't know about the text. There is more to this text than I'll ever cover with you today. Right? So never say, oh, I, I, I got it all. No, you don't. There's always more, but look at these words. Look at these words. If you, if you start to mind the words, it comes alive. You've been favorable. You've brought us back. Did you know that those words literally... Uh, are, are related in Hebrew to satisfying a debt, a pardon, and reconciliation, to, to drawing back, to refreshing, to restoring. In other words, this is talking about God's amazing grace. It's his ransom. If you want to have revival, again, remember where it was the last time. Did you know you are a walking picture of revival, physically speaking? Your heart just went lub, dub. Now, how many, that, a once is enough for you. That's it. Thanks. We don't need any more of that. Don't go charismatic on us. How many wants your heart to keep beating? And every single time, that's a revival. You're not, you get the SA node and the AV node, and that SA node's going boo boo, and then boo boo, and then it goes, you know, of course, it goes to your lungs and it goes down. How many of you are glad for that? Look at the person next to you. Maybe it's not working so well, you can just hit them on the chest and bring revival, amen? <laughs> Look, I used to work in emergency, I was a paramedic, and sometimes the heart would stop, and we would, we would, we would attempt to externally bring revival. And people would thank us afterwards. Thank you so much for saving my life. Right? Because they wanted to stay alive. Look, we need to look back at the past to see what God has done. I remember in a home in one of my churches, there was a, a couple that wanted to remember everything that God had did for them, had done for them. Did for them? That's not very good. Had done for them. Yeah, I'm from Amazing Facts. So anyway, um, um, everything that God had done for them, and so they had what were called, they had this little pile of stones on their, on their uh, postum table, their coffee table, and right there on that, that coffee table, they had like all of these stones, and they called them Ebenezer stones, based on that story. And they, they had these little stones, and they wrote the things that had happened down. And then when the family came along, they would add more things, and they had a big pile of rocks. I remember when Johnny got better from having that terrible fever. I remember when the doctors didn't know why he had pyelonephritis, even though he had just been born. It was an odd thing, and there was a healing. He is a walking miracle. I remember this, I remember that. How many of you think it's good to keep a journal, to keep some Ebenezer stones, if you want to have revival? Because how many of you think the devil tries to get you to forget how it is that God acted in your life? Has he acted in your life? And we need to, we need to be reminded of that. Because you know what, so many times, we have this little picture that we developed. It's all poor, pitiful me. <laughs> like today, I have a herniated disc in C6 and 7. I got pain going all the way down my arm. These two fingers are numb. I have burning pain in my back. 
but I'm rejoicing because I'm alive. I could have died. I'm only here as an act of God. It's a miracle. I'm glad I can feel pain today. Amen? I'm not as glad as I sound, but I am glad. I am glad. So we need to remember, you know, the early Advent movement. If you ever want to say, oh, no, I'm just working too hard, just get out the book, Early Writings. Just go ahead and read the first 80 pages, and then you will just, <laughs> just kneel down. You'll say, oh, God, thank you. I've, I, I ask forgiveness. I have been revived. Amen? And I love Adventist history because of that. It helps me realize that this movement was begun with life, and energy, same way it's going to be completed. Amen? Amen? Number two, if we desire revival, look at the text again. We have to consider what? Look at verse 2 and 3. Look at verse 2 and 3. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered their sin. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. What do you learn from that? If you were doing a little study on that, what did you learn? Nothing? What did you learn? You, what's it say? Have done what? Forgiven the iniquity. You have what? Covered how much of their sin? All. You have taken away how much of his wrath? All. What's it saying? God's people, according to this text, are iniquitous sinners by nature and by choice. Isn't that what it's saying? The only are deserving of what, according to the text? The wrath of God. And God has reason to be to, to angry with them. Look at, verse, look at verse 5 at the end. Will your angry be with, anger be with us forever? Will you prolong your anger? What's it say next? To all generations. I mean, God has reason to be angry at you forever. How many generations? Not just your generation, every generation. But he's not. Can you say hallelujah to that? that I, mean, I don't know about you. That, that is cause for rejoicing. Amen? So what he's done in the land and what he's done in your life. He has not chosen to be angry, but instead, what does it say in those verses? He's chosen to forgive and to cover. How many of their sins? All of them. Chosen to take away all of his wrath. And he has turned from the fierceness, all the fierceness of his anger. Wow. By the way, though, I think that revival can only come, according to the text, when? When we recognize that we are sinners. Not just in some vague way. Oh, God, I'll cover all my sins. I know there's many. Thank you. Specifically. Amen? Specifically. If you want to have an experience this week, then ask the Lord, reveal to me specific issues in my life. Right? Listen to this from a book called Great Controversy 472. The commission of a known sin silences the witnessing voice of the Spirit and separates the soul from God. What? Did you hear that? The commission of what kind of sin? A known sin silences the witnessing voice of the what? Spirit and separates the soul from God. Now, how many think you want to get specific in that, if that's the case? If that is the case, how many of you want to get specific and say, Lord, 
I want to know the specific thing that has completely silenced your voice. Now, maybe you're here at Army because you're going, man, I need some revival, right? I need to get up there because I'm going to draw energy from the people there. <laughs> when Pastor Myers gets up, I'm going to get energy from him. Well, that might be helpful, but you know what the bottom line is? When you say, Lord, what's coming between me and you and others specifically, and he identifies that and say, Lord, I want that taken away. Yes or no? So how can sin be pointed out? It's only by a faithful preaching, I believe, of the law. Romans 7, 9, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. So the only way we can have revival is when we, the law shows how alive sin is in our lives, and we say we don't want that anymore. By the way, all of us have sinned. Isn't that what the Bible says? Now there's a fascinating chapter in Ellen White's writings called um, modern revivals. How many of you have ever read this? And it's kind of built around this idea. Ellen White says that false revivals, really the difference between them and true revivals is that in false revivals, the law of God is not preached. The law of God is not preached. There is no real specific pointing out of sin. Great controversy. It's only as the law is restored to its rightful position that there can be a revival of primitive faith and godliness among his professed people. How many think that sounds like something we should be interested in? By the way, what was happening on the Day of Atonement? This psalm is what? Psalm 85. When was it sung? The Day of Atonement. What was happening on the Day of Atonement? Where was the high priest? And what was he ministering over? The mercy seat, which was over the what? And he was reviewing whether or not any, any, any confessed sin. The whole idea was a focus on sin. Can you see why I would quote those quotes in this context? Did I, did I do my homework okay? Right? So, uh, you know, it's often in our lives that we get serious when the law is laid down. I remember once I was attending nursing school, and I was not doing a very good job. And... Because, never mind, why? <laughs> because that's not the point of army camp. And, but, anyway, I, somehow I found myself in front of all the nursing instructors, and they told me, you will no longer be in the program because of this. And I had to go back to my, had to go back to my room, and I was thinking, and then this one person comes up on my behavior, I mean, on my <laughs> behalf. <laughs> Can't help but tell the truth, can you? So anyway, and this, this person spoke on my behalf, and after about 45 minutes, I was called into the room, and they told me, you can stay in this class if you never miss another class, if you're never late, and if every single assignment, you get at least a 90% or above. And this one teacher was like a fly saying, he's going to be gone. And I was like, and the law had been laid down. So I actually went and bought textbooks. I hadn't bought them to this point. And I actually, I actually did not go to the beach anymore. And, you know, there was a revival in my grades. Why? Because the law had been laid down. Amen? Since then, I've been doing pretty good academically. So how many of you think it's good for the, for, for, for the Lord to say, this is, this is it? There's boundaries, yes or no? That brings revival.
Psalm 85, verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from, from heaven. What a beautiful text. Isn't this a beautiful text? This is the secret to revival when we look and see what Jesus did. He came, mercy and truth met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. What was that? The judgment of God fell upon Jesus, right? Our judgment. Can you say hallelujah? That's why he can say your sins are forgiven and whatnot. And because of that, because he paid the debt, he can then give us what? Mercy. I don't know about you, but that's good news. Good news. Hosea 6, 2 and 3. Verse 6, 2. After two days he shall revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. That's what it says. Isn't that what Jesus did? He died, he rose again, and he's going to revive us. So we've looked back. We've looked at our present state, and we've seen what God can do. Now, as we conclude here, let's look forward in the text. You know, as you're looking at any text, when you study any text, what are a couple of questions you can ask? What's the problem that's being addressed in this text, and what's the solution? What has happened? What is happening? What will happen? How many think those are good questions to ask any text? Those are good. I'd write those down. I ask those of every text. We've looked back. We've looked at the present state of the text. Now we look forward, back to the text. Verse 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him. And notice what it says. And shall make his footsteps our pathway. Did you read that? Look at it. You're looking at me, but don't. Look at the text. Look at 12 and 13. Look at the text. If you have a Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, how can you be in the army? without a sword or an iPod or whatever you have, uh, iPhone. doesn't work up here. Get your Bible out. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. This is looking forward. Our land will yield its increase. Look at verse 13, beautiful promise. Righteousness will go before him and shall make, what does it say next? His footsteps are pathway. How many think that's a beautiful promise? What's it saying? Who's going to go before us? And who's going to lead the way? Put the path there? And what's he promised to do? Make his footsteps what? Our pathway. I don't know about you, but I think that's a beautiful promise. It's a powerful promise. True revival brings what then? True repentance and true restoration. Back to the text, verse 8 and 9. I will hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak what? Peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. When he revives us, does he want us to go back and sin? Go and sin no more. Heard that, isn't it right? Surely, verse 9, his salvation is near to those who do what? Who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Doesn't that sound like the first angel's message? Fear God and do what? Give him glory. Did you see the progression in that text? Look at verse 8 and 9. We're talking about revival here, how to have it. Did you see the progression in that text? He will speak peace. What is the peace of God? If you were to do a study all through the Bible, what basically is the peace of God? 
Love, okay, that's good. He has, he has poured his love into our hearts, therefore we have what? Peace with God, Romans chapter 5, right? So the peace of God really is that through what he does, we can be justified, amen? And then it says, let them turn not back to folly. If the peace of God is justification, what is it when it says don't turn back to folly? What would that be? Sanctification. Can you see the progression in the text? The peace of God, justified. Let them not turn back to folly. We can be sanctified. Then what's it say next? Surely his salvation is near those who fear him. That what will be in my land? That glory may do what? Dwell in our land. So what's the last step in this progression? Justification, sanctification, and then what's the next one? Glorification. Can we say hallelujah to that? That is that sanctuary model. You're moving in that text from where? From the outer court to the holy place to the most holy place. The place of what? Revival. Revival. Will his glory fill the entire earth? Will, at the end of time, there be a revival? Will, at the end of time, the character of Christ be perfectly represented in his people? Are we told that? Listen to this. Great controversy, 464. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. At that time, many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted the love for God and his word. So they're looking for a church where there's a love for God and his word. They're looking for an army, right? They'll separate. Many, both ministers and people, will gladly accept those great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed at this time to prepare a people for the Lord's second coming. And the enemy of souls desires to hinder this work. So look, the progression in the text was what? Justification, sanctification, glorification. And it's going to happen. It will happen. The only question is, Oh Lord, will you not revive me that I may rejoice in you with that throng? How many want to say, Lord, revive me. Let me be a part of that throng. That's the picture that's given. So I guess I come back to the question. How many of you can see how we studied that text? Can you see how we did that? Yeah. We looked at the context, we came to that, but isn't it a meaningful text for us today? And then it comes down, it begs the question, do you need revival in your life? Why did you come to the army? Are you spiritually dead? Do you want this death to continue? Do you desire a change? Do I desire a change? There's a quote that got my attention. If Satan had his way, there would never be another awakening, great or small, till the end of time. He doesn't want you to be revived. He's the one making you tired and stuporous right now. Right? He's the one attacking the speakers and different people with physical maladies, isn't he? Isn't that what he's doing? He does not want there to be a revival. He certainly doesn't want your life to change. Not at all. But look at this. 
We are not ignorant of his devices, the quote continues. It is possible to resist his power. When the way is prepared for the Spirit of God, the blessing will come. So what's, what's his desire? That there never would be another revival. But now listen to this. Satan can do no more to hinder a shower of blessing from descending upon God's people than he can close the windows of heaven that rain cannot come on the earth. How many say hallelujah to that? Wicked men and devils cannot hinder the work of God or shut out his presence from the assemblies of his people. If they, this is what, this is our job, if you will. If they with subdued, contrite hearts will confess, put away their sins, and in faith claim his promises, every temptation, every opposing influence, whether open or secret, may be successfully resisted, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Review and Herald, March 22. It's true. So the text is true. The only question is whether we really desire it. What was our text? The memory text today? See if you've got it. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Do you want that to happen? Let's just bow our heads. Father in heaven, Lord, we've seen a little bit about how to study, how to break down a text, but there's something much more important than that. And that is that our hearts be broken down and that you broke, break down our pretexts and that we allow you to ask us questions so we can see your need, the need of your justification, your sanctification, your glorification. Our heart's prayer, our heart's desire is the same as the psalmist. Will you not, O Lord, revive me again that I might rejoice in you? Work on our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.